This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The FX series Fleischman is in Trouble was adapted by our guest Taffy Brodeser Ackner from her novel of the same name. The complete season is now streaming on Hulu. Brodeser Ackner is also known for her celebrity profiles in GQ and the New York Times, where she's a staff writer for the magazine. She spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. Taffy Brodeser Ackner's midlife crisis happened earlier than most. At 33, with a one-year-old baby in tow, Taffy realized she wasn't experiencing the wild professional success she'd imagined for herself, like her other classmates from film school. Taffy got to work, becoming a self-described idea machine, writing articles out of her insatiable desire to be a storyteller. Now, more than a decade later, she's known for her celebrity profiles for GQ, ESPN The Magazine, The New York Times, and others. In her 40s, she wrote and published her first novel, Fleischman is in Trouble, which she turned into a limited FX series now streaming on Hulu. Fleischman is in Trouble centers around a 41-year-old divorced doctor named Toby Fleischman, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who post-divorce dives into the brave new world of dating on apps. But at the start of his summer of sexual freedom, Toby's ex-wife, Rachel, played by Claire Danes, disappears, leaving him with their 9- and 11-year-old kids. While Toby Fleischman balances work and single parenting, he begins hanging out with Libby and Seth, two old college friends, played by Lizzie Kaplan and Adam Brody. Here they are, inside of Toby's apartment, talking over takeout about the realities of marriage and divorce. Jesse Eisenberg's character speaks first. Divorce is like that old Othello game, you know? You start your marriage with all the discs white, right? And then there's some black discs here and there along the way. You know, you fight, but ultimately you laugh and it's fine because the board is still mostly white, right? But then something happens and the marriage falls apart and suddenly the entire board is black. Is that how you play Othello? They should probably change the name Othello, you know? Yeah, so now even the good memories are like tinged with darkness. You know, they're tainted like they were rotten from the start. Not all of them. Yes, man, all of them, okay? Now you look back at all those memories, like the fight you had on the honeymoon, the way you couldn't agree on like a name for your child, and suddenly they're no longer innocuous fights anymore. Now they're foreshadowing. I think when we get married, we really have no way to fully understand what what forever means. Taffy Brodeser Ackner is the writer, showrunner, and executive producer of the limited series adaptation of Fleischman is in Trouble and a staff writer with The New York Times. She's won many awards for her profiles, including the New York Press Club Award and the Mirror Award. Taffy, welcome to Fresh Air and congratulations on the success of the series. Tanya, thank you so much. What a kind introduction. When you were around 40, you noticed that so many of your friends were getting divorced and all of them were on dating apps. Same. I saw that, too. And like you, um, one of my favorite things is to have my single friends show me their dating apps. Um, What did you find that that then became the inspiration for you to write an entire storyline and book? I mean, I just thought that the way people are dating now is such a revolution over the way it's always been. Um, You know, you get dressed up, you go out, you try not to look too needy, you try not to look too desperate, you try to forget that, you know, your college roommate is prettier than you, and you try to figure out the right place to go where you will find somebody that is somehow waiting for you, that you've been told in romantic comedies is waiting for you. 
And here, this revolution came and you could be lying in bed watching TV and scrolling through potential partners, all of whom decided to show up at the same exact place, which is your phone, and it changed everything. Or I thought it changed everything. In the end, I believe in heterosexual dating, men are still very much in charge. Um, But mostly what I saw was how I would have liked to have spent my time back then instead of, you know, showing up in my human body with makeup on. It's rare for novelists to adapt their own work and have creative control over production for an actual show. Had that always been an aspiration of yours? It had never been an aspiration of mine. It wasn't even an aspiration of mine in doing this. But luckily, I think maybe perhaps when you write about middle age um, and one of your characters is an agent, (laughs) um, a lot of people in Hollywood were interested in this. And I thought I would sell it and continue working at the Times. But every time I spoke to producers or writers on the phone who wanted to adapt it, I would feel a sort of jealousy, but I was very focused and I had this great job. I love working at the New York Times. Um, So I continued talking to people. And then one day I spoke to Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant, who ultimately became my producing partners on this. They're well-known producers in the industry, yes. Well, legends of the industry, the most wonderful people in the world. Um, And the first thing they said to me was, well, you would have to write this yourself. It's in your voice. No one else could do it. And when you say I had total control, actually what I had were these people who are beloved and trusted and, again, legends in this industry. And I believe deep down it's they who had the control And they gave it to me. Their control consisted of saying to me, here's how you do this. And then to stand back and and let me try it. Part of the confidence that they had in you was also because this is not a straight ahead story. It's spoil alert. um, Fleshman is in trouble. Plays with perspective because on the surface, it's about a 41-year-old divorce doctor. But by the end, we are aware that he was the vehicle to tell a much bigger story about the midlife crises of the women in his life, his ex-wife, Rachel, and his friend, his college friend, Libby. Why did you tell the story this way, initially through this male character of Toby? There are two reasons. One is good and one is sad. And the first reason is because I was having this crisis in the journalism I was writing. As you said, I write a lot of profiles. And it got to the point where I would spend enough time with my subjects who told me very personal things about their, about their lives and about their pasts and about their marriages that ended and about their children, and about their struggles in the world, and their gripes with the world, and, and sort of how, how it's been for them since they took off. And I would always sit and think toward the end. I would be enthralled, and then toward the end, I would start to wonder, what would the people that this person is mentioning, and, most, and, and I worked at GQ and then at the Times, so but most of them were men, 
what would the women in their lives say? What would the other people in their lives say? And Fleischman comes out of this crisis of remembering that you don't really ever know a story at all. And the second reason is because I grew up with this brand of book, um, like a Portnoy's Complaint or a an American Pastoral or a Rabbit Run, like a Philip Roth, John Updike, male point of view story that I always loved. Those were those were my favorite stories. And what I found when my friends came to me and showed me their phones were that the men were having these ridiculously wonderful times on these phones and with their apps and dating. And for the women, it was relatively dismal. It was that the men their age were looking for somebody younger or thinner or with fewer kids or with no kids. And it got to the point where I, I would, I mean, I would look at, I have a friend who came over to my house once to change for, for a date because she had um, teenage daughters and she didn't want them to know she was going on this date. And I said, show me your phone. I'm writing this book. Show me your phone. And she showed me her phone. And it was this guy, his profile description said something to the effect of, you know, my, my ex-wife was a psychopath and if you're into playing games, please swipe away from me. But if you're a normal person... <laughs> you know, and yeah. I was like, and I said to her, "What? What about this was interesting for you?" And she said, "You, it was the best of the crop in weeks. the best, right? I mean, it's yeah. really amazing." So when I wrote the book, it seemed like just a more fun way of entering the story to tell the story of a man. The narrator is Toby's college friend Libby, which is an interesting way to tell the story. She's a former staff writer for a men's magazine who is now a stay-at-home mom living in New Jersey. She's the character that is most like you, but I've also heard you say she's not entirely you. What are the parts that are you? I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because in fiction, you know, you've made it up. So everything is you, right? Um, everything, every person on the page is some aspect of you. But Libby, especially as rendered in the show by Lizzie Kaplan, is cooler than I am. But the things about her, she worked at a men's magazine. She has a, a very devoted husband and two children. And she's just feeling lost in the world um, I have all of those things, except that I left the men's magazine to go to the New York Times. And it just became, for the plot of the story, where we diverge is that she, during the summer, needs some time to come and figure out what she wants to do. Whereas I went off to the New York Times and had a, a pretty good time. I just couldn't figure out a way to convey how miserable I was in the suburbs and how how. M- m- the start of middle age hit me like a truck. There was no way to really do that and also, you know, have this really fun job at the New York Times where you're, you know, being sent to to Budapest to interview Antonio Banderas. 
Right. So the the divergence is she leaves the men's magazine and she says, I'm going to write a book. But two years later, um, she has not done that. So her decision to quit the magazine to write a novel after she realizes she'll never be seen as that genius star writer, um, that title of a genius writer is almost always given to men. I want to play a scene. It's two years after Libby has decided to quit. Um, and she's lost, as you said. Here she is reflecting after going on vacation with her family. But now it's two years later. I haven't once even opened a blank page and made an attempt. And here's the secret of my vacation. That while we were on the rides and standing in lines and taking pictures, I wasn't really with my family. I wasn't in Florida. I wasn't on an airplane. I wasn't at a themed restaurant begging a hostess for a reservation everyone in the world knew to make weeks before, but not me. I wasn't even at home unloading the car. What to do with you? with Toby. Taffy. Okay, first of all, um, the soundtrack. That's Caroline Shaw. Caroline um, Shaw, yes. And that is my absolute favorite track that gets sort of distor- like rendered and then distorted and then made orchestral along the way. It's called Ring of Copper. And it's this, you know, my husband describes it as a, a music box with that, you know, that's charred and burnt with bent strings. It's just this, it's the beautiful sound of the longing of my soul that Caroline, who is a genius, um, was able to execute so, so beautifully. Well, Taffy, that uh, soundtrack that Caroline Shaw uh, produced for the series is um, enrapturing. But the thoughts that Libby expresses in this scene are thoughts that many women have, but are never really expressed. And I find it to be so honest. Was it easy for you to get to that place to say something that is unspoken, that maybe mothers aren't with their children mentally when they're in these other places, they're thinking about the other parts of themselves? I found it easy because I had been doing it since the minute my my children were born. I have been running around and grabbing people by the lapels and saying, like, what are you supposed to be thinking about? What is the right, um, in Hebrew, the word is, is kavana. Um, it's, it means intention. Like, what are you supposed to be thinking about while you're taking care of your children? And are you, is it seditious to not be thinking about your children when you're with your children, especially when they're very, very young? Um, but that's what these thoughts are. They're a kind of sedition, but they're also a kind of freedom that that nobody gets the totality of your brain. And Libby, who has had this summer where she is spending time in the city again where she used to live, and she is with friends who knew her when she was young and when she was all potential, she's suddenly sent to Disneyland. And I don't know anybody who does not ask themselves a lot of hard questions when when on a Disneyland vacation or on a Disney World vacation, 
where you're stuck with nothing other than the family that you've created. And of course, of an incredibly privileged position to go to Disney World, but also to ask yourself, is this, is this what I thought it would, what happened to the version of me that was a few days ago sitting in the park like I was young again, or the version of me that was supposed to be somewhere else by now? And that is what's on her mind. How intentional was it to cast middle-aged actors we first knew as teenagers? It was so intentional. It was, um, you know, there was this idea that the these actors were too young to play these roles. I mean, Jesse Eisenberg, when we started talking about the adaptation, was only 36 years old. Um, luckily, and I mean that facetiously, the pandemic came along, and by the time... He got older. <laughs> 38. <laughs> so we were able to, to, to rationalize that. But we had these choices. Did we want to cast people who were older, who we could then look at as in a more authentic crisis of middle age? But the point of the book and the show are, are the beginnings of those crises. And also this allowed us to have them play themselves in flashbacks. But most of all, and your question hits it exactly correctly, um, if I don't, as a 40-year-old, yet understand what is happening to me in my life, the idea that Jesse Eisenberg, yes, from The Squid and the Whale, yes, from The Social Network, that it's happening to him too, that it's happening to Claire Danes from My So-Called Life, that it's happening to, oh my gosh, to, to Adam Brody, to Lizzie Kaplan, to Josh Radner, all these people that we knew so well as very, very young people. It hits home for me so much to say, oh my God, this is a, this is a force you cannot fight. If you're lucky, if you're lucky and you get to live, this is a force that you won't be able to fight. We're all going to get old. We're all going to get old. I, actor Lizzie Kaplan who you mentioned, who plays the role of Libby, she said something to the effect of it's a dream to have aged into this type of material because it's why she became an actress. And she mentioned Adam Brody and how he should have aged into these incredible cerebral parts, but there's no material to support it. And when I read that, that really brought home for me a deepening of why I love this story so much. We don't see this kind of character excavation of Gen X often. I've always been into wondering what adulthood would be like. I did not realize that by the time you finally realize you're an adult, there's no prime of that. By the time I figured out how to not care if people liked me so much or how to understand that, you know, that I would like to play more basketball, my knee started to hurt. And, um, I started not to be able to go out as much because my kids have homework. Um, so those are those are the <laughs> those are the. I was always very interested in adulthood. I had a fairly um, strict upbringing, and to me, I always had my eyes on the prize of freedom, which I think is why the freedom that goes away when you make these adult choices was such a shock to me. 
We're listening to the interview our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, recorded with Taffy Brodeser-Ackner, the creator and showrunner of the FX series Fleischman is in Trouble, which is streaming on Hulu. Brodeser-Ackner adapted the series from her best-selling novel of the same name. We'll hear more of their interview after a break, and we'll talk with Chloe Servino, author of Raw Deal, about why the meat industry is damaging the environment and contributing to global warming. She'll tell us about some promising alternatives to meat. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to the conversation our guest interviewer Tanya Mosley recorded with Taffy Brodeser-Ackner, creator, writer, and showrunner of the FX series Fleischman is in Trouble. It's now streaming on Hulu. Brodeser-Ackner adapted the series from her own best-selling novel of the same name. She's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and is known for her celebrity profiles. Taffy, as we've been mentioning, uh, you started as a celebrity profile writer um, in this space with GQ and the New York Times and many of uh, other publications. Well, most of your writing, you always exist. So the fourth wall is always broken. And your voice and tone are almost always about tearing down kind of the artifice of a celebrity. And an example is your profile on Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop for the New York Times. People either loved it or hated it. Maybe journalism purists hated it. (laughs) Why do you think this style of writing, um, maybe why people are so taken by it, have such strong emotions about it, why this type of writing can be polarizing? Uh, You know, it's funny. I have two thoughts on that. One of them is that to pretend that there is no person writing the story is its own dishonesty. And I don't know, in terms, of, in terms of it being polarizing, this was what the theory I came up with along the way on Gwyneth was, that the reason people hated her so much was because she was this sort of reflection back to us about what our deficits were. And... One of our deficits in general is exquisite beauty and thinness and wealth. And if I think about the people who perpetuated the notion that we, whoever we is, hated her, it was journalists. Because I got to tell you from experience, and I think I put that into the story, it is very hard to be a regular person in the world who sometimes eats pizza and who sometimes sometimes doesn't exercise for two weeks and who is concerned about paying for camp. And then you have to encounter Gwyneth, who has become so shiny in all of our eyes that we can't even see either her flaws or her problems. Um, It's a very unique position to be in, but I do think journalists perpetuated it. I've heard you mention that you regretted some of the things that you've written, and one of them was Motley Crue, a profile on Motley Crue, because it was perceived as mean. What are some of the other profiles or profile that you regret doing? You know, I only regret 
two things. One, in that Motley Crue profile, they weren't so kind to me that day, which doesn't mean, you know, I'm not here for revenge, but I think I was maybe hurt by it. And I was, it was one of my first few profiles and I was just starting out. And I took a shot at one of the band members' appearances. And I just feel like that is beneath me, beneath us, that, you know, it did a lot to inform me about how I want to be in the world. And I don't want to be someone um, who is funny at other people's expense. It It was a funny line, but it was at someone's expense. And the other thing I regret is something I don't, I rarely talk about it because I, when you talk about it, it's to implicate somebody. But I can say vaguely enough that I once asked a recovering addict too many questions about addiction. And afterward, I left and I sort of didn't realize it. I, I was, again, I was starting out and an editor had given me questions to ask. And I was trying to be a good girl, but I'm the one on the front lines, right? Like I'm the one, I can't try to get my next job at the expense of this person whose only sin in the world is that that they have a publicity obligation and has to sit down with me. Um, I've always regretted that. And I've always thought of reaching out to the person and saying something. And I don't know why I haven't. Maybe because I don't know. I don't even know if I did it as badly as I remember doing it. But I, I think about it all the time. Taffy, you're from Brooklyn, uh, you lived in two neighborhoods in Brooklyn, Flatbush and uh, Canarsie. How would you describe them? I would describe Flatbush and Canarsie as, when I was growing up, hard places to be from. Like, you know, Canarsie remains Canarsie from what I understand. Um, it's hard to get to, so I never drive through it, though sometimes I think I should. Flatbush, I somehow missed the... I was in the generation in between the romantic stickball flatbush and the artisan cheese making flatbush of now. It just felt like either a, a way station or a a place of uh, sometimes of hopelessness because of the lack of money that people had, the sort of mini ethnicity wars that were always going on in the, in the neighborhoods that I lived in. Um, yeah. It was not a fun place. As you mentioned, you were raised in an Orthodox Jewish family. How much, how much of your family's history was part of your understanding of yourself growing up? That's such an interesting question. I felt that my family's decision to become religious when I was 12, which is what happened, we were generally unaffiliated Jews. And then when my mother, when I was 12, my mother decided to become very orthodox and my sisters followed her and i i always felt like it's what made me into a journalist the idea that for the remaining you know 6 years that i was home there were these people that i loved dearly that I, that are still the closest people in the world to me and i was baffled completely baffled by their decision I think I'm still equally as baffled, but I have a great amount of respect for who they are and how they live. And I guess the way it formed me 
was that it made me into someone who understood that you could hold both of those things in your hands. What made your family decide to become Orthodox Jewish? When we moved to Brooklyn from Long Island, which is where we lived briefly while my parents were married, um, my mother was very shocked at the crassness of the culture. You know, fifth graders wearing eyeliner and short shorts. And she was always she was always very conservative. And she felt that sending us to Jewish schools would help slow down the culture. And slowly, we came home from those schools saying, hey, how come everyone else keeps kosher and we don't? How come um, everyone else lights Shabbat candles and we don't? And my mother started participating more and more in that. And then one day had a revelation that this is, that it was the people who were participating in religion in a more complete way that were somehow avoiding the pitfalls of the culture, which to her were drug use and premarital sex and unwanted pregnancies. And those were her priorities. I'm just curious, what was it like to write about divorce with two kids while being in a marriage with two kids? Um, It's very, very interesting. And I was very self-conscious about it. And I I was always worried that that question would come to me and I wouldn't know how to answer it because I didn't know the answer to it. Because I did know that everyone else I knew, their first novel was a coming-of-age novel. And what did it mean about me that I was so drawn to this subject matter? And I would say in my head, like, you know, I'm a journalist. I, this is what's interesting to me right now. And I'm very comfortable in saying that. But when I was at a reading and somebody asked me that, and my husband was there, and I finally said... I don't know, we should just ask him what he thinks about this. And he gave the best answer I've ever heard. And it's the truest, though it didn't occur to me then. He said, she's obsessed with divorce. Her parents are divorced. Her sisters, some of them are divorced. Like everyone around her has always gotten a divorce. And that's the answer I think I like the best. The idea that once you get married, you're your marriage, become because it's two people, becomes this sort of closed box. And you never really know if you're doing it right. But what happened was when all those people started coming to me and telling me that they were getting divorced, all I could think of was that I was at their weddings and they were happy on their wedding days, as happy as I was on mine. And what is it that I could do? I felt that my parents' divorce was a catastrophic thing in my life. I can look at it now as a thing that has, like, that had the most long-term damage in my life to me and to my sisters, I think. And though I, though I won't speak for them. And I think, I don't know, maybe it behooves us to examine these things a little more instead of pretending that these questions aren't on our minds. If these people could get divorced, it could happen to me and I would like to I would like to do some preventative work. I would like to see it coming because I think that there's so many factors. Taffy Brodesser Ackner, thank you so much for this conversation. Tanya, thank you so much for having me on. It's been wonderful. 
Taffy Brodesser Ackner is the creator, writer, and showrunner of the FX series Fleischman is in Trouble. She spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. Fleischman is in Trouble is now streaming on Hulu. After we take a short break, Forbes staff writer Chloe Servino will talk about her new book, Raw Deal, which investigates how the meat industry is damaging the environment and contributing to global warming. She'll tell us about promising meat substitutes that might reduce meat consumption and slow climate change. This is Fresh Air. Our next interview will be of interest whether you're a meat eater, a vegetarian, or a vegan. Dave Davies has this one. Here's Dave. Meatpacking has been the subject of journalistic exposés dating back more than 100 years to Upton Sinclair's searing descriptions of slaughterhouses as cruel to animals and dangerous and degrading for workers. Our guest, Forbes staff writer Chloe Sorvino, says meatpacking workers today still suffer from low pay and poor working conditions, but that the American meat industry has other serious far-reaching problems. She finds that market power in meat processing is concentrated in a handful of powerful multinational companies and that the industry is dominated by factory farms and huge feedlots where animals get antibiotics and consume feed grown with synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. The industry, she says, pollutes the environment, contributes to climate change, and leaves the meat supply chain vulnerable to major disruptions. In a new book, she also explores meat substitutes that are gaining a following and considers whether they have the potential to change the industry and slow global warming. Chloe Sorvino leads coverage of food, drink, and agriculture at Forbes. Her new book is Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. Chloe Sorvino, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about some meat substitutes that are gaining some traction in the United States, you know, to give people alternatives to beef and pork. Um, You know, Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers are very well known. I eat them. They deliver a terrific, authentic beef taste. Um, Does it seem that these products will get enough market share to have a real impact on climate change and these other issues? I really felt like I couldn't write about the wealth and power in the meatpacking industry without also talking about the challengers and how they've been trying to take a bite out of big meat. But so far, there's been billions of dollars invested and so little actual sales. The plant-based meat sales right now are still less than 1% of the total meat industry. And that's not the type of scale that's actually going to make any climate difference whatsoever. But we really don't have the time to waste. And before I delved further into the world of alternative proteins, I wanted to address if it actually really could make an environmental difference. And so the alternative milk industry actually does have roughly around 15% of the total milk industry. And so I was using that as a bit of a proxy. And figured out if plant-based meat did take a share of around 15% of the total meat industry, it really would be quite significant. It would actually be the equivalent of taking a quarter of all cars off the road in the U.S. So if, if they can do as well as milk substitutes have done, it might be meaningful. You know, there's another kind of meat alternative, which... Um, rests on fungi, right? Mushrooms. And you write that I have come to see fungi as probably the strongest foundation for meatless meat. Um, what, what makes you optimistic about it? 
I was growing mushrooms in my apartment in the pandemic and love my mushroom share. I'm a big mushroom fan. But there is also this third wave of alternative protein startups that have been trying to commercialize how to grow mostly the rootstocks of fungi called mycelium. And it's created a line of new products that are starting to come out very slowly, but will be emerging more and more, especially in early next year. And they take no pollution for the soil. They're not using any harshly farmed commodities. Well, at the same time, these products are often not having to use as much processing. Most of the alternative protein products on the market right now are often very ultra-processed, filled with additives and different ingredients. Um, But the mycelium-based products are actually pretty much sliced and then almost use like a chicken breast or a slice of bacon. They they take far less manipulation to taste like the meat alternatives that folks want them to taste like. And so where is it a huge, you know, big kind of airplane hangar size room where mycelium are, are growing? And I mean, what does it look like? Yes, I toured some of these warehouses and it was amazing to see just the scale of how big these farms can go. They're often vertical. They're very high up. There's rows and rows of trays where this rootstock has been growing. And the warehouses often take a fair amount of energy, which is one of the bigger environmental sources, um, but very low on water, very low on other types of, of resources. And they take a lot of heat to make these mushrooms bloom quicker. And then you have all these different trays of mycelium and different types of fungi being taken out and sliced and then eventually put in packages and getting out to the market. So if you run this big operation on a coal-fired electrical utility, maybe not so good. But if you do it with sustainable energy, it's a real contribution to the environment? In theory. I mean, there are sustainability trade-offs with any single type of food, any protein source. And that's why I wanted to talk about mycelium, because while it is a far better option, it's looking like, it isn't without taking up a significant amount of resources. And the founders I spoke to all talk about how they are really relying at the end of the day on the government electrifying the grid for their energy source. Few plants right now are using their own solar or alternative energy sources. And, you know, lab-grown meat, cultivated meat also These plants are taking up huge amounts of energy and also really relying on the government to electrify the grid. But if that happens by 2030, it remains to be seen. It's another way that this emerging industry is passing the cost down the line to someone else. You do hear that solar is a lot cheaper than it used to be. We'll see. Um, Let me uh, reintroduce you. We're going to take a break here. We are speaking with Chloe Sorvino. She's a staff writer at Forbes. Her new book is Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air. I want to look at some other um, efforts to come up with meat substitutes that you write about. It's a startling statistic you have. Americans eat 9 billion chickens a year. I knew it was a lot. That's a lot. A lot of them are fed on corn. You write about a company called Cook's Venture that's working to raise chickens that eat more sustainable plant food. Uh, and, and it involves actually breeding the chickens a little differently. I didn't realize you know, chickens are bred to have certain characteristics that the growers want. 
what what is this idea of these chickens eating different foods and bred differently? You actually tasted some of this stuff, right? Cook's Venture chicken tastes completely different from the chicken you find at almost any grocery store or restaurant. I really wanted to tell that story because 99% of all chicken in this country comes from just two companies. To hatch a chicken, you need genetics, and more than 50% of the market in the U.S. is controlled by Tyson and a subsidiary they have, and another 50% is owned by a German conglomerate that I write about that's been driving a lot of consolidation, rolling up pretty much every other player aside from Tyson's in the U.S., and Cook's Venture is trying to create a sustainable pasture raised system where these chickens are going out of their houses whenever they want, foraging through the dirt and the forest and even the different streams on this property. And they are only really able to do that and be as athletic and active because they are this different breed that Cook's Venture has been bringing back and may eventually one day start licensing it to compete with everything that is out there. So how is it more environmentally responsible? I mean, it tastes better. That's okay. That's good. And the chickens have less miserable lives. Why is it better for the environment? I write about one of the pilot projects Cook's Venture has been working on to transition their chicken entirely off corn and soy, which would be huge to actually consider how to get less reliance on feed. That's another key way to stop climate change to, to really stop some of the soil erosion and water impacts that we've been talking about. But they're testing a bunch of different alternatives from sorghum to wheat. They've been working with farmers to be able to do cover cropped wheat. They're still actually able to harvest without impacting and tilling the soil. And at the same time, then this holistic system that they're building in Arkansas has orchards that they've been rehabilitating, and the chickens then also are spreading their own manure through the soils. And these are very lively grasses, completely different from what a massive feedlot chicken operation with thousands and thousands of birds forced into confinement, unable to move. And can they do it on a cost basis that makes their birds competitive with the stuff that people get in the supermarkets? The birds are competitive right now. I mean, not to say that they're making huge profits, yet industrial meat has still maintains the most profits. But Cook's Venture has been raising a lot of money, and they've been spending a lot of money to try to get their marketing out there, get into different stores. You can find Cook's Venture chickens, white labeled as a private label for Trader Joe's even. They're selling at supermarkets. They're also selling online. It's around $20 a chicken. It's more expensive, but you also are getting more nutrients. You're you're getting higher omega-3 ratios and the bones you can use for a stock. The goodness that comes out of their bones are unlike any other bones I've seen in a commercial setting. You write about something else I've never heard of called air meat. Air meat. <laughs> this, this sounds pretty wild. What's the idea? Yeah, Lisa Dyson has been pioneering some wild research out in Silicon Valley. Air Protein is her startup, 
And they have been commercializing research from NASA that was originally from the 1960s that was being looked into so that astronauts could potentially create single-cell protein from the carbon dioxide that they release when they breathe up in space. Essentially, air protein is using fermentation to rapidly take these single-cell organisms and slapping on flavor science, doing a bit of food engineering, then creating a chicken breast out of that. Has this actually been done? Has a, has a chicken breast been created from, <laughs> from carbon dioxide? This is one of the ones I really tried to eat because I was so curious what air meat would taste like. And it's definitely the most secretive I've encountered. There are a few investors who have tried it under lock and key. I, as a rule, as a journalist, don't sign NDAs, so... I was not going to be doing that to try it, but I'm really hopeful too soon. They just raised a Series B and are getting way closer towards production. All right. Well, you have to tell us what that's like on a Whopper. <laughs> um, Chloe Servino, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Chloe Servino is a Forbes staff writer. She spoke with Fresh Air's Dave Davies. Her new book is called Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about how Israel is moving to the far right. Ultra-Orthodox and ultra-nationalist parties formed a coalition government with recently re-elected Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. What will this mean for the Palestinians, women, LGBTQ people, Russia's war in Ukraine, Iran, Israel's relationship with the U.S., and even who is defined as Jewish? Our guest will be Anshel Pfeffer, a columnist for the Israeli publication Haaretz and author of a biography of Netanyahu. I hope you'll join us. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Teresa Madden, Anne Rebel Donato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs> <laughs>